This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Ray, how you feeling? You know, when the temperatures drop and we get that winter feeling things, it really affects me more. That's when I get that aching in my bones. But I found that CBD and medicinal together can take care of the majority of my aches and pains. The ones that, you know, you have every day as you age, but also the ones that you get from all those activities of taking care of business in the fall. No kidding. I've been doing a lot of raking because we have so many old trees around our house that you rake one day and then two days later... The yard's filled up with leaves again. And that's why we're happy to have One CBD as our sponsor. Go to OneCBD.com. That's O-N-E-C-B-D.com. Or follow them on at OneCBDLife on Twitter. And you can find out about all the aspects of what One CBD does to help you with your pain. One of the things that I like the most, Marcus, is that everything they purchase to be used in their CBD is 100% organically grown hemp, free from pesticides and fertilizers, and that's important. I also like the fact that they're third-party lab tested and made in the USA. And they know how to take care of business when it comes to your pain. At 1CBD, O-N-E-C-B-D.com. Achieve a renewed sense of balance. It's time for the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And we want to thank our sponsors before we get going on this week's episode for their support. Of course, our friends at 1CBD, ONECBD.com, and the gang at Crook and I Brew because they are now providing the free 10 ounce. That's all you got to do is mention the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll when you go into Crook and I in the heart of Hapro, and you'll get your free 10 ouncer. And tell them I said hi. <laughs> <laughs> Marcus, since the beginning of this podcast, we've talked about a city that we both have great musical interest in love for. Like most cities in America where music scenes have developed, there's a certain amount of similarity in what goes on between the cities. In the city of Seattle, they did it themselves. They postered everything. They supported all the clubs. The problem was there were 100 people in bands and there were 100 people going to see the bands. So you could as most get a couple hundred people together for just about anything. <laughs> because of that and because of something we've discussed, so we would talk about it before the podcast, there were the authorities in Seattle which were dead set against anything that was too loud or too raucous or too rock and roll. And they found a lot of different ways to shut down venues, close them for good, stop bands, stop music, and all kinds of things. And that, from what I've been gathering, is the impetus as to the resistance, if you will, that has gone on in Seattle far longer than anything we 
see here in the 21st century. They had to overcome and beat the man because the man wanted everything that they were doing to stop. All the live music, all the rock and roll, certainly anything punk or loud. Yeah, they had a lot of resistance from the authorities for the metal and the punk scene, which were both blowing up pretty big in Seattle at that time. And they also ran into that kind of resistance in other cities, but I digress. Seattle had that extra little special thing where they did their thing politically to close down venues so that there wasn't any place for you to go to see those bands that you didn't really know about yet. And that was what they had to overcome. Now you see a lot of similarities in what was going on in Seattle. You have DIY music, a lot of DIY gigs that were at non-traditional venues as well as the traditional venues. Bands making music and wanting to play so badly that they would kind of create their own space to make sure it happened, right? And you see that in successful scenes where things feed off of each other. And a lot of times you see the crossing of the streams where different genres of music within a town or a region pull together to help promote and coordinate and push out to the world each other and the whole thing. And you see that in a lot of cities where the musicians care about the music and each other, not just getting famous and or at that time getting rich, right? That is true. And in Seattle, if you talked publicly about wanting to be famous, you were laughed at not only by the other musicians, you were laughed at by the people who came to see your shows. So you definitely didn't do that. I think there was only one Seattle musician who got away with it, and that was Andrew Wood of Mother Love Bone and Malfunction, who we'll talk about at some point. Yes. But holy cow, this Seattle scene that we're going to really jump into the heart of is a pretty impressive music happening. Before we start, I want to define a scene according to Larry Rosen. To begin with, all music scenes share a few common elements. Scenes need young, disenfranchised, poverty-bound people. Most scenes happen in college towns. All scenes happen in places full of kids with lots of time, not much money, and too much hair. Since most people want to be rock stars or writers, eventually some of them form bonds, admiration societies, and there they are, the seeds of a scene. Spare time, youthful angst, oversimplified worldviews, and guitars. When you add the DIY factor that was prevalent in places like Seattle in the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s even, in places like Philly and New York and Detroit and Chicago, whether it was a, a small 45 or an EP or whatever, at the local guy. Now, Seattle ended up having record labels that could do this. And out of a lot of the different scenes, developed little record labels that were running in support of the bands that wanted to record and release their music. In Seattle, you had the added factor of the agitated youth to the point of defiance because of the bullshit with the cops and the politicians mm -hmm. over venues. A large amount, a high level of talent working together to conspire to make bands and great music without the intent of creating a scene. They just did it. It didn't happen because they were trying to create the Seattle scene. These guys just all knew each other. Mm -hmm. The way they all worked together, this one slept on this one's couch and they were roommates and they were in this other band together and it all flowed back and forth. In fact, you can go to Matt Cameron and you can show Seattle has a situation where this guy is the guy who's been in like two out of the three, four biggest bands ever to come out of there playing for both of them as a drummer. So the way Seattle works is the way really any great scene works is it's not as simple as A, B, C, D, E. Oh, look, we have a scene. It's as simple as deep mud, hard to navigate with your sneakers and things like that, which is part of the reason why I think they got into the Doc Martin scene in the Seattle scene, other than Susan Silver was selling them to him over at the store. At a great price, probably. 
probably. Probably. Bad price. No, you're right about the uh, scene elements, but the social factors that are the common elements include the disenfranchised youth, the poverty, yeah. and the angst. And we saw it, the British invasion. In Detroit, when the MC5 and the Stooges were brewing, there was that kind of angst amongst the poor white kids in Detroit. You right. saw it in Great Britain, UK, and London during the punk scene. You saw it at the CBGB scene. You saw it in the hardcore scene. So as all these scenes progressed, you see those similar elements while they all had different other elements as well, but they still provided these scenes of music and all of them started underground as well. What I was saying is the difference between most, if not almost all the others, is that Seattle had this really unusual level of talent that was from there mm-hmm. and native to there. When we look at this chart that we have from the book Loser, right? Yeah. You printed it out so we could make reference to it. It's like the family tree, a big chunk of Seattle, because not everybody's on here and not everybody's accounted mm-hmm. for. But it's all the bands that connected through uh, Pearl Jam, back to Soundgarden and Mother Lovebone and Green River and uh, Malfunction before uh, yeah. Mother Lovebone. And the U-Man. And, uh... and it, it goes all the way back to, right, all the way back into the earlier parts of the 80s. And this stuff happened at this level because of a chart like this and the stuff that's not on the chart, like the U-Man and the Fastbacks aren't even on here. They're before that. You know, Nirvana's not accounted for. Metal Church isn't on Queensryche. Well, that's a whole nother yeah. thing that might have people in, you know, a little confused about Seattle. What is the Seattle sound? Well, you know what? It's not as simple as putting your finger on a handful of bands, and any of those bands would tell you that, too. Oh, absolutely. Um, Queensryche, EMI was interested in them. They followed their own path, had almost zero in common with uh, the bands of the 80s and 90s, you know, Alice in Chains and Soundgarden and everybody forward from there, and yet went to all heights of success 30 years ago, releasing their landmark, most successful album, Empire. It's got Jet City Woman on there. They're from the Jet City. They yep. represented that in a major way all through the 80s, that there was something brewing up there in the woods outside of Seattle. And then you had Metal Church. You mentioned them. Those guys, they were not quite as commercially successful, but just as influential as Queensryche, and certainly had a lot to do with another set of sonic impressions that were being made out there to the rock fans, because they'd go and see everybody. The ones that there were would go and see everybody. You mentioned all of the talent that happened during that scene and even before. If you look at the history of Seattle, Bing Crosby, Edward Murrow, Frances Farmer, and her story is absolutely nutso. The Fleetwoods, the Brothers Four, the Whalers, the Ventures, the Sonics, the Viceroys, the Dynamics, Ron Holden had an R&B hit, Tiny Tony, Sir Mix-A-Lot, the Daily Flash, are just some of the bands that are in the early days of Seattle as they grew and grew, and this is going all the way back to 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. You had in 1959, one James Marshall Hendricks and his friend Junior Heath busking outside the Spanish castle or the Empire, playing guitar on the corner, uh, making money that way. You had uh, Pete Townsend in 64 saying in an interview, seeing the Sonics was one of his good memories of America. So... All I'm going to say is you're only underlining my position, which is that Seattle had a lot going on. 
and there were people that didn't get out of town. That most of those bands you just mentioned, nobody ever fucking heard of outside of that little region there. There really yeah. wasn't that much for them, the Sonics aside. And that's what you find in almost every local scene. For every band that gets out, there's at least 10 or more that never really get beyond mm -hmm. the area code, the zip code, whatever you want to call yeah. it. But the thing is, in Seattle, you had a burst of talent, a couple people making noise, and then an opportunity mm -hmm. that through the late 80s into the 90s led to a real landslide of people coming to look for talent. And uh, some of the bands that were involved in that are part of what we want to talk about here. You know, one of the things I didn't realize is that the mentors were from that area and that they've been around since 1976. So if you're looking for punk roots in Seattle, like for the punk side, mm -hmm. look to the mentors. Okay. Yeah. And when I listen around, I hear that in the U-Men. I hear it in 10 Minute Warning and the Fastbacks who yeah. just broke up 10 years or 11 years ago. Mm -hmm. And you hear a lot of it and the influence of the Melvins as well, who, you know, they're a huge influence on a young Kurt Cobain because he worshipped Buzz, but he them. And he lived on, I think he lived at their house, at Buzz's house for a little while till he got his shit together, you know? And that's the kind of relationship they had. And like you were saying about, oh, it's, look, it's young Kurt, little Kurt. The gang who were starting to follow the Melvins already knew him before they started doing anything in a musical yeah. sense yet with Cobain there. But there he is in the middle of the Melvins coming together yeah. themselves. They're already spawning the next generation. Yep. In a five-year period, Duff McKagan played in like 30 bands that's in Seattle. That's what I'm talking about. All those <laughs> bands and all those bands you mentioned before that nobody's ever heard of that's the, the feeling that we can all record and release and be important locally but the seattle syndrome yes but always limited if somebody gets out the sonics are immortal because they got out they came back too by the way But the fact of the matter is, is that's the Seattle syndrome. And what we're talking about here is going beyond the Seattle syndrome. And what a lot of scenes go through, you have to go beyond what has been your locally accepted, but not really what you all want kind of local scene thing mm -hmm. to expand it to a national level. Sometimes it just has to be a burst of talent, the right situation. Or as I jokingly call it here in my notes, Captain High Top and the attack of the 200 foot tall A&R representatives. And that's basically <laughs> what happened when a guy that I call Captain High Top, you can call him whatever you want, Andrew Wood, who had he not died just as Mother Lovebone was coming out, would have gotten the curve of all expense accounts flying to and in and out of Seattle to explore bands going a lot sooner. Mother Lovebone made an amazing record. We were both talking about this the other day. And him dying, succumbing really to his addiction just as they were breaking out really was a blow to the scene that already had a lot of the people we've already mentioned. It already had Green River with, you know, you look at the tree that we're talking yeah. about and the members of Green River end up being together in bands like Mother Lovebone and they end up being in bands like Pearl Jam and uh, other bands as well, right? So these are the seeds on this family tree. And before there was a Mother Love Bone, there was a band called Malfunction. And they they started in 1980. So you kind of got to look to that as the real beginning of what would grow from there. Because 
all these other bands would come along after that, including the ones like Melvin's and a few of the others that are considered influences on the young bands that become the Nirvanas and the Pearl Jams. Yeah, but you men were forming right around 1980 as well, and they started making noise right away. So you had these different branches, but you're right. Malfunction 1980 starting was really one of the... That uh, stuff is good, man. I was really listening is. to some of their music. It really was good. As a teenager, and, and, 16 years old, he's writing these songs with these very adult themes, and you're like, this can't yeah. be this kid writing this stuff. It's so deep. And as soon as I was listening to it, found it on Spotify and was listening to it, I was like, fuck, man. This would have been one of those things that had they succeeded, would have come out eventually because it was so good, even mm-hmm. though it was pre-Mother Love Bone. It kind of sets a pattern when Wood passes that unfortunately has continued there with depression and uh, heroin use mm-hmm. overlapping and costing us people. Absolutely. Uh, people who are people. all there, who are all there at this point in this mm-hmm. one little spot in time in Seattle, mm-hmm. they were all there along the I-5, man. They are all there ready to go. And it they were a- forming bands and making bands. They were making bands. Like you're talking about Duff, right? They are making bands and breaking bands left and right. They didn't worry about whether their band was gonna, had only been around for a couple weeks. Hey, I like these guys. I'm going to go and play with them now. Until something happened. And Duff ended up leaving town because of that, even though he's resettled back in Seattle over the years. Inbreeding is what we sometimes joke about it with all the bands and the way they're interrelated and tied together. Ah. But like you mentioned, it shows the respect, the love everybody had for each other, the support they had for each other, and the fact that these people would see each other and be like, you know, at some point I want to play with that cat or I want to play with her. I want to play with them. And there was a lot of that. And then, you know, things would happen and they'd be like, hey, you guys want to get together and jam one day? And they would jam. And there was really a lot of that type of stuff. There was a place called the Music Box where a lot of the musicians live in Seattle and they would sleep in their practice spaces and they'd be playing all the time and they would jump into rooms and jam with each other. And it was pretty wild. But Lane Staley lived there for a while after he got kicked out of his house by his mother. And Jerry lived there with Lane as well. This is the kind of shit that goes on when you have a scene. I'm telling you, I saw some of this same kind of real life on the ground, rock and roll life happening. And some of it turns into drama Mm -hmm. and some of it just goes on to glory and some of it has tragedy attached. Absolutely. You get a little bit of that. And that's kind of what we saw here. So these bands all come down through the neck of really Green River. If you look at it, a lot of this flows from there and then from Malfunction. Mm. And in Green River originally was Mark Arm and uh, Jeff was in there. Jeff uh, from Pearl Jam. And then guys who would show up again, like Alex Vincent or Steve Turner would show up in the later form of Green River. And it all kind of flows down to Mud Honey and then around to these different formations they'd be in, like the extended 10-minute warning, which would feature Greg Gilmore, who would be in Mother. And that connects them to Bruce Fairweather and Stone and Jeff and Andrew Wood from Lords of the Wasteland, which all goes down through. It all feeds down into the bands that really set off this whole thing. And Mother Love Bones, one of them, Skin Yards in there, uh, Love Child, and uh, Jangle Town, which has got a couple people in who funnel down to Mother Love Bone and then Soundgarden. And you look at what Soundgarden has been, their own little part of the family tree. Started as a trio, Chris Cornell on drums. And they were one of the first bands actually signed to a label besides Mother Love Bone. They were signed to 
A&M, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Well, they were on SST, and a lot of the bands were on either SST, CZ, or Sub Pop. They were the three main labels, but there were other small labels. People were doing their own shit, which I thought was also extraordinary about Seattle and something that I saw in Philadelphia a lot through the years. Bands were just making their, printing their own EPs and selling yep. them at gigs. And you still see that a little bit now digitally with bands doing that in their own studios. And there's a lot of talent here in Philadelphia, as I'm sure there yes. is a lot of cities where people are very passionate about music. Seattle, Jack, and, you know, Indino was made. Terry Date was made in Seattle from some of the work. Susan Silver managed Terry Date for a while. Even like Pone Man and Pavit, who started Sub Pop, big names in this whole big thing. It's crazy. And this place was so isolated. In the middle of all this, man, and this is before we knew each other, before so much other great music would happen, the scene kind of lost a big chunk of its soul and really brought everybody down. Mm-hmm. And the best way that they found to make that better would be to build a temple of the dog because he was the star dog champion, man. He was Captain High Tops, right? And so they did the Temple of the Dog record to build the temple to the dog and they got everybody involved. It was like, you know, what would become Pearl Jam and all of Soundgarden all working together. We are the world. We all miss Andy. And we do. It hit me pretty hard because I hadn't seen them, but I'd heard all this amazing stuff about this band and was already all over them on the Rocker show. And uh, and that's kind of a, a weird turn in this whole episode. And it's one of the sad ones too, buddy. But it does give us Pearl Jam and gets Eddie, this surfer kid from San Diego, to come up and crossbreeds the California scene from San Diego with the, the most northernmost scene up in Seattle between STP and bands like that down there. And people, you know, like Pearl Jam and Nirvana and Alice in Chains and Candlebox too, all uh, part of what's going on there in the, the late 80s into the 90s up there in Seattle. It was a very important time and the fact that they were able to move on with somebody that actually did what Andrew Wood was hoping to do was pretty shocking I think in a lot of ways for Stone yeah. and Jeff and them and for them to be able to move on but they did it and they did it successfully and that whole scene I mean really changed rock and roll in the direction of rock and roll and it took us out of the 80s hair bands and Alice in Chains is a huge part of that. They were making a lot of noise early. They in a lot of ways, along with Soundgarden, opened the door for Nirvana to kick through because yeah. they were getting a lot of radio play before Nirvana just blew it up. Man in the Box was doing well. We Die Young was the first single that they released and then they did Man in the Box, I think is their second single. And We Die Young got some play, but it didn't get a lot of play. You know what it, it did? It got played on every station like MMR that had a metal show Yes, on all the college stations that had metal programming, it immediately got played there. And that's true about a lot of the music that we're talking about here. When commercial radio began to discover Alice in Chains or Soundgarden, metal shows on commercial radio and uh, non-com underground music stations had already been playing them for two to three years in some cases. Yep. And that included Nirvana, who uh, was very tight with uh, King Buzzo, Buzz Osborne and the yeah. Melvins, who were one of the godfathers of the scene because they weren't straight punk, they weren't straight metal, they were just kind of like their own fuzzy version of what they what they were, what they were. They were the Melvins, you know, and they were just a great band, and Kurt Cobain idolized them, shared all of his ideas with Buzz. Buzz gave him all the encouragement he could, like a rock and roll parent should, right? Yeah, he was definitely like a father and older brother that was taking care of him, and you know, some really interesting stories with Kurt tied to the Melvins, 
because of his relationship with them. You know, he was a part of that very tight-knit Melvin's fan group, and the Melvin fans knew him as Little Kurt and thought he was a cute little kid. He was basically this homeless high school kid who lived on friends' couches, including a time with Buzz. And Little Kurt was in a band, and Veronica Kelmer, who was a friend of his during those early days, said that they all went to be supportive of Kurt and his band, and they ended up scraping their blown minds off of the club cement floor. He also told Michael Azerod, Kurt Cobain did, that the first live gig they played was broken up before they even showed up. The next one, they scared everyone so badly they were in the kitchen hiding from the guys in Nirvana that were playing in the living room. What? Nirvana shocked people with their sound that they scared this room full of suburban kids. Like, they all ran to the kitchen after Nirvana scared the shit out of them. I think they'd get a bigger reaction than that just a couple years later. What they did was uh, pretty impressive, and everybody was talking about them in the scene when they were playing clubs and playing live shows, saying this is the band that's going to take it to that next level. And Kurt and Chris had known each other for a while, since high school, I think, right? They kind of knew each other, and, and so they were always searching for that missing third wheel and it wasn't until well Dale Crower played with them for, on some of their early demos and stuff because he was the Melvins drummer and he was a friend of theirs even though he was an older dude they didn't care and until they, uh, they really until they got Grohl in there though things weren't really what they were going to be and there was some great music I'll tell you what I have a renewed appreciation for Bleach after listening in the last week or so getting ready for this I went let me get that out I got out a couple other things but I was let me get that out and listen to that holy shit man great album really great set album. the stage perfectly and i didn't realize when i first heard them i was in houston just a few weeks before the the album nevermind would come out and i was there for another band to see them play live they were putting out a record and it was a, a metal band so i'm there and the guys from geffen cato and rosie took me in and played me a couple tracks i was like oh my god i immediately got it again on a level i was like does anybody realize what this is and they were very excited about the band but they didn't I don't know. I guess they didn't know how it would connect. And I just felt it right away. For all the times that we're wrong about these things, it's nice to be right once in a while. And Absolutely. it was a good one. Oh, yeah. That's a great one to be right on. I'll post a picture of the baby on our Facebook page cool. because uh, there's a whole story that goes with that, too. But we'll, we'll save that for a time when we're talking just about Nirvana. Did you get to uh, see Nirvana in their early days? I saw them at the one and only J.C. Dobbs at 3rd and South in a legendary night. It was right on the cusp of them just getting ready to come out everybody knew they were already a band they'd already played at Dobbs I believe I didn't make that first show that was on the Bleach tour but I get there and I know the people who are involved with the management and also with the venue of course and somebody's asking me if I know anybody who's got a joint because Kurt's got a bellyache kind of thing and sometimes a joint helps to take the edge off of his stomach pain and being me naturally with my friend Terry White we found our way where the entry to the backstage is and out the side door in the alley and there we are Smoking a spliff with uh, the boy genius. At that point, that was my view of him. He was a boy genius, you know? Holy cow. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Very surreal. Well, it's really smoke two joints because it was one of those things where you're smoking one, and I think it was Terry at it and says, Here, man, take one for later because you might need it. Oh, okay. Just really cool. It was brief, but it was really cool. Yeah, Hung out cool. there. One of my great Dobbs stories. We saw so many great shows there, and it's just closed now. And it really, I wish I hit the lottery because then I would open it and it would be a fun joint again. But that's uh, this close up 
as I got with them. And uh, I saw him a couple other times. And uh, Great lab. No, obviously. Oh, yeah. But obviously, though, the another hole we talk about would, right? Kurt Cobain's death was Kurt, another big hole. Another monstrous hole. And here you are in a scene in full flight. By then, Pearl Jam is already formed and a couple of records into what's going on in their world, right? They're on their way to becoming who they are still today. And these are not just your friends in the scene. These are the people you know, your friends, your real friends. Mm-hmm. And so we had to all keep an eye on Eddie for a few days there while all that was going on after that. And later along the way, we lost Lane and, uh, Chris. and depression took Chris. And, you know, some of this is just natural to have as we get older. And you're talking about people who are now well into their 50s and starting to hit 60 as yeah. far as all seeing aging together, some of the guys. And I love what they've meant. I love what the music that they brought us and what it made us feel. Forget all the other stuff. I love it when I can put on an Alice in Chains record mm-hmm. and just, I know where I'm going, man. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like when you get behind the wheel of your favorite sports car and you know the road, mm-hmm. that 150-mile road and what it is. Yeah. You get just kicked back and enjoy the ride. And, and that's what usually happens with most of the music that I'm looking at on our uh, Seattle family mm-hmm. tree here. Alice in Chains and Soundgarden, out of that whole, the big four from Seattle are the two that I most closely identify with. They're the two that I love the most. Facelift, I think, is a brilliant album, and I saw this great description of the album that I want to share. It basically said, Facelift stripped the negative energy of metal down to the core, shedding the cartoon Satan worship and singing about real personal hell, self-torment, pain, and addiction, which are all very relatable to the disenfranchised youth at that time. Sure. It was a very personal record, and I think some of that shit scared people because it was so personal, and it was heavy as fuck, too. Facelift is a heavy, dark fucking album, and it's beautiful, too. Right around that same time, Soundgarden's going from Ultra Mega OK, their first album, really, right? They've been on some EPs mm-hmm. and singles. Like, everybody in Seattle had multiple stuff. I have some of that stuff in my collection, like vinyl with shared singles and stuff. I gotta go oh, through that. Yeah, you've gotta look through some of that. I, I don't know what's in there, I'll be honest with you. But just around that same time that uh, Alice in Chains is dropping Facelift, they're about to put out Louder Than Love. So you've got two bands from Seattle releasing major label debuts within weeks of each other. And that's kind of where a lot of the press starts to come from. That there's this band here and this band here, and they're both catching on. And they keep telling us that the best bands are still in Seattle. So that brings on the advent of the 200-foot-tall A&R representative. And they, <laughs> and they all just keep going into Seattle, seeing who they can find. And I can tell you, they were there a lot. They signed a lot of bands. A lot of bands got a chance. They got their opportunities. But only the ones that people really clicked on really took off. And Mm -hmm. we've talked about some of the bands. We've talked about one of our favorite bands from Seattle that not everybody knows in Mud Honey, Mm -hmm. who descended in somewhere in the middle of this family tree. There they are. And, you know, you find Mark Arm all the way down in the middle of that, too. And that band had a lot of the grist that is uh, particular to the scene of Seattle in their sound. And I didn't understand how they would not catch on in a way that others would. Let's just put it that way. You know what I mean? I do. And to start it all, they had recorded their first song, Touch Me, I'm Sick.
in the singles movie, they had the song from Citizen Dick called Touch Me, I'm Dick, which was basically a parody of Touch Me, I'm Sick. And that song really kind of gave you a feel for what Mudhoney was about, that grungier, almost Fugazi-like feel in a lot of ways, very punk, very anti-the system. Uh, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. And I would say that listening connectively, I think that Mudhoney has more in common with you men say as far yes. as how they sound as a band yeah. that they're more descended from that same thing where a lot of the other bands either develop their own thing mm-hmm. or were derived from different other aspects of what was going on in the scene and there are parts of a lot of the music I've been listening to and I'm going well I hear a lot of Nirvana's mm-hmm. sound in that or yeah. and it's before Nirvana and then I hear things that are big they're coming from other things that are in the scene so oh, yeah. it was very amoeba like and the strength of the thing as much as anything was is they got organized and we mentioned Susan Silver. She had the store where they all bought their Doc Martens. There was a shoe store and Kevin Martin from Candlebox worked mm-hmm. there. Kevin sold them their shoes and then they would he would open for them that Saturday night. You know, yeah. that kind of stuff. Know, and she did a lot of management. She managed, well, she was married to Chris, his first wife, and then she uh, co-managed uh, Alice in Chains and then later managed them on her own and she worked with Kelly Curtis who was later to become Pearl Jam's manager and they, co- they did a lot of stuff together and the management scene had a lot of that connective tissue too where people did what they needed to do to make things work she became like the mother figure in a lot of ways in the Seattle scene because she was able to help so many people with what she had going on there yeah her role in the Seattle music scene is very important and I'm glad that she gets the credit that she does because of what she did and it was a lot of work for and she even mentioned that in the book Loser that it was a lot of work for to try to keep all of this stuff together because you had all these strong personalities and then you had all of these conflicts with the Seattle syndrome and so much more to deal with so that you know she had to kind of put it all into a ball organize it and make it happen and she did you know what I'm realizing is that there are two people that we should have had on this call to be part of this week's episode one is Kathy Faulkner who was uh, the radio godmother of a lot of what happened there when she was uh, the music director at KISW and the other is your old buddy Rockfish I know Rockfish uh, Rob Oxford been great is in the middle of a lot of it too. so maybe we'll get them on for a follow up you know the next episode where we talk about Seattle we'll start getting some stories I have more stories than I'm telling already so I'm sure you have more stories because of your work with rockers and all of that but it's important to talk about this because the attitude of Seattle is so different than any of the other scenes I think there's a toughness to yeah. it that a ruggedness more because of the fact that it's in such an isolated area in the northwest there's a lot of blue collar a lot of lower class white kids as well as of course you have the richer suburban kids with the tech and some of the other industries like the defense industry but you had a mix of both right chris cornell was no altar boy it was a tough dark city and let me throw something at you because it's just occurring to me the seattle syndrome could be the philadelphia syndrome could be the chicago syndrome could be the memphis syndrome except for in certain places people break out of the we can only go so far do so much with what we have out here in seattle right maybe it's more a case of in a, in a city like Seattle, it's a major U.S. city, but not in the middle of 
California or mm-hmm. New York or Midwest, whatever. But maybe it's because of that, that they were remote, that they were able to develop something unique without the normal politics and bullshit not pulling at them. And unlike a lot of scenes, they didn't give up when the chips got down, when things got tough, and when it felt like you were just describing when it's us against the world kind of a feeling, they didn't give up. And the music had to be good, and it was. And it developed. The artists developed. They learned to do that. Look at how many decades of influence we've seen following up the Seattle scene in the mid-90s and late 90s. Some of that new metal was developed from some of the sludgier sounds of the Seattle right. scene. You also had heavier bands like Grunt Truck, who we haven't spoken of yet, which is an offshoot of Skin Yard and The Accused and a few other older bands, which I know you and I both love very much. Crazy Love Above Me and Slow Scorcher, three of my favorite songs from that time period. We didn't mention Grunt Truck, but we did mention Indino briefly, mm. and he produced a lot of the records, a lot, some of them for Sub Pop, some of them for the bands themselves, but Jack did a lot, a lot of work and still does a lot of work and had some really great success with the local guys. We mentioned Terry Date, another guy who wasn't in the Seattle scene, but who had a lot of success producing records for bands from there. And once you get started with that kind of stuff, ask Dave Jordan. It just start, starts to perpetuate itself. And that's something else that didn't happen everywhere. And because they didn't have a predetermined pecking order, anything could happen in that regard, unlike more major U.S. city. And uh, that, I think, is a big part of what led to the Seattle syndrome in the first place. Wow, we've been going on, man. I'm thirsty. Can we go to Crooked Eye right now? Yeah, let's get that quick pint and recharge. I was talking to Paul and Pete, man, and they want to offer a special thank you to all of the listeners of the imbalanced history of rock and roll. What kind of special are you talking about? Everybody likes free beer, Marcus. How about a free 10-ouncer when you go in and mention the imbalanced history of rock and roll when you sit down and order your first drink? Free 10-ouncer, yes. Some of the most amazing brews you're going to find at any brewery in the Philadelphia area right there at York and Montgomery in the heart of Hatboro. We're talking about Crooked Eye Brewery, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. My favorite of all the Crooked Eye beers is the Black Eye Stout. I love Oh, yeah, you love that. that. Yes, you do. So smooth and just so full of flavor. Jeff manages to get more flavor. And the way he kind of masks the edge on the hops is beautiful. And you can't beat going in, sitting down, saying, hey, I listened to the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. May I please have that free (laughs) 10-ouncer? Free beer. Why not stop in and get a growler, a pint, a crowler? Take some home with you. And don't forget, the entertainment's back. It's coming back in stages. There's more and more stuff going on. And find out what events are back and when they are. It's Crooked Eye Brewery on Facebook. Right in the heart of Hatboro, the cure for what ails you. And a free 10-ouncer. When you mentioned the imbalanced history of rock and roll, and we thank them for their support. Well, I'd call it back from the halftime festivities, Marcus, but we're running a little long this week, so we're way past halftime. We're almost to the fourth quarter, if you know what I mean. It's a lopsided halftime if I've ever seen one. It's imbalanced. (laughs) Bingo. 
It is the imbalance history of rock and roll. And we're talking about the Seattle syndrome and beyond the Seattle syndrome. A lot of it goes back to those early Hendrix days when he was just a kid before anything was really happening, playing all those bar gigs. There was already uh, a Seattle syndrome taking hold. It would continue into the 60s and 70s. In fact, Jimmy would venture off to New York and then uh, UK uh, because there was nothing for him to do in Seattle that was going to make a difference. He got out of town as soon as he could, hitting the road, right? And the other person that people always say are like the first Seattle band is Hart. And they moved to Vancouver because their boyfriends were running from the draft, I believe, and they needed to get out of Dodge with them. So they really didn't finish their formation as a band or really form as a band or do much about that in Seattle. Like they weren't playing gigs in the local bars, whatever they were at the time. And that's part of the Seattle scene that's as weird as any is how many bars and venues with or without alcohol came and went. And the book you were mentioning, Loser, I read it too. And all I could tell you is that it really does in-depth, detailed description of what was happening in Seattle. Seattle, really back to the 60s pretty much and even a little bit into the 50s. So if you want to get that book, I think it's a really good idea. It was like the authorities were constructing obstacles, hurdles for them to cross. This one is real high. This one's real wide. This one's built around an entire you know section of the city. And they would do that. They would try to keep all music venues and, and events out of whole sections of the city, even places where you would think you would see that, mm-hmm. right? Near restaurants and bars and other things like that, other nightclubs. And they would try to keep rock and punk and metal at bay for a long time. Oh. Even after the band started to be successful and it became part of the tourism of Seattle, they still didn't really get along. And it's really detailed well in the book Loser. It really is. The way they talk about the clubs and how these clubs would be open for three months and then they would shut down because of the authorities. And then that same club owner would find a new space six blocks away and they would have a new club and then it would get shut down and then they would get broken up because they would put 400 people in a 150 person space and all these crazy things that they did did and that is the seattle syndrome all this together and playing in front of the same 150 people at every gig you play it's the seattle syndrome and that was what they were stuck in before things changed in the 80s i would say first with the metal guys and then later with uh, all the bands that we've been talking about for the most part which by the way do you think we could do a uh, quick five favorites of the bands that we've been talking about on this episode (laughs) of the seattle syndrome no i'll do my best i mean there's so many let's keep doing what we have planned to talk about here and then we'll double back around and see if we can put together a five favorites. All right, that sounds good. We keep talking about the Seattle Syndrome and the isolation and the distaste for that, I guess you could almost call it L.A. rock and roll lifestyle. They really did not like that L.A. lifestyle because of who Seattle was, who Washington was, who the Northwest was versus Southern California and... But who would have think that that crew out there in the woods in Seattle would adopt a shunning like they were Amish of anybody who wanted something like that. If you Mm -hmm. wanted the electric toaster and stuff like that, you'd get shunned. If you wanted to be a rock star and you were all playing around in our scene, you would get shunned. It made you look like a poser because you were trying for something, not just doing 
almost like Yoda like if you yeah. think about it. And don't try, just do. And that was what was going on there. And everybody was a starving artist and you had to be a starving artist. In Seattle they labeled you a sellout if your forty five had too fancy a artwork on the cover. <laughs> you became a sellout because you spent that extra money. If you had a management company Here's the question. The question is who are you trying to impress, man? Yeah. That's the that's the attitude. Exactly. And if you had a good management company who was able to get you good paid gigs, you were a sellout. Because if you read in through the book Loser, a lot of the bar owners and club owners short paid their musicians that came through and played. They also sometimes didn't pay them at all. And there was one instance where they took all the money and bolted before the show was over and weren't anywhere what? to be found afterward. You hear a lot of that. And I'm sure that happens in a lot of cities where you have sure. burgeoning scenes. But they gave you an in-depth look at it with all the clubs. There was a club like The Vogue, a bar run by Monty the Cross-Dressing, Dominatrix, and his wife. And it was a great club where people like Andrew Wood hung out and other musicians hung out and played. It got a lot of love in the scene, but it eventually couldn't survive. And But this is all all you're saying. Everything you've just yep. been saying for the last minute or so is all part and parcel of the Seattle syndrome. The we are stuck in this mm -hmm. thing and we can't get out and we can't get our money because the guy ran away with the money and all this stuff. You're standing in the rain. And it's, it's all I could tell you is that there was a lot of suffering that went into the opportunity that were built and given to the first bands that were able to build a career and make a bigger, better life for themselves there in Washington State while going out and touring and conquering the world. But for a long time, I would say for a very long time, even, and I got another question to follow up on this for you, even as far as the way that it's portrayed as Citizen Dick is portrayed in the movie Singles, it's so Seattle syndrome-ish. The whole band thing, the whole fawning over the reviews and what did they say about me and all that bullshit. Bullshit. And that's what a lot of the scene nonsense is all about sometimes. Because then my follow-up question is how much, because we, we're talking about what the reality was, all this work and angst and frustration and conflict with the authorities and all these things that were going on while the bands try to create and have a great scene musically to go out and see. How much do you think that the movie Singles, while it helped the scene as far as visibility, do you think the movie Singles sugar-coated it and made it seem like everything, even the shitty oh. band, had a hard time? Or was it just an acceptable polishing up of what Seattle is for the world. I think it totally sugarcoated it and gave it a fantasy appeal. Seattle's a beautiful city. It's an amazing city. I've been there a few times and I love that city. And it was one of the cities we looked before we ended up in Philadelphia. It's one of those cities that was definitely high on my list to live. I could wear flannels year-round without a problem. I've been wearing flannels since I was a kid and it's always been a part of my wardrobe. But Seattle It's true, ladies is and gentlemen. Great, it is. In fucking July. No, I'm just kidding. You know, you're right. In July, if it gets down to 60 degrees, I got a flannel on or 50 degrees. I'll wear a flannel over a t-shirt. No lies. He's got, he's got the sawed off sleeves. <laughs> Those I have as well for the hot days. You know what? We've talked a lot about it and the Seattle syndrome is what held itself back, held them all back. Mm -hmm. It was a shot Until in the foot. When they finally took some outside help from SST and that helped to create the little energy there mm -hmm. and CZ a little energy, right? So you start to have some energy there and then Sub Pop comes in with a couple compilations, some successful singles and then they make a couple albums and all of a sudden everybody seems to be doing pretty good off of what's happening there with Sub Pop and there's a lot of happiness and eventually I know there was some discord at the end of that but that's all part of what was going on there but it was much more than that. The same way with SST and CZ and a couple of the other labels, indie labels that were involved and then the dozens of, this is what we call our fucking record company type productions. Dozens, hundreds of them. Bands just 
just putting it out themselves, DIY, go down to the mm -hmm. pressing plant with your masters and press the sucker and take them home the next day. That is part of what makes people appreciate how hard they have to work to get to where they want to go, to what they want to do. And you work hard to sell those at your gigs and you try to work harder to have gigs because you have a record out and maybe you get it on the radio station and maybe you get a break. And that's what the scene was. A lot of radio was also changing too. And you had the University of Washington involved and all these different radio stations that were part of it. That it wasn't just a cut and dried commercial rock station making it all happen. There were some different elements involved and some weird shit involved with that as well. But it's, in any scene, there's going to be weird shit and there's plenty yeah. of weird shit in the bands and outside of the bands and over the decades, too much tragedy since they all left the clubs. And in some ways, I wish I could go back to 1989 and go do my first Alice in Chains interview all over again at the Foundation's Forum. Someone reminded me that because I, I always remember walking in with the mic already rolling, the tape's already rolling, and I walk into the hotel room and there's an ongoing pillow fight. There's stuff flying, let's put it that way. And I figure it's all pillows. And my buddy Metal Mike reminded me that he says, hey, do you remember the chair sticking out of the wall? And I had forgotten, but all four legs of a chair were stuck in a wall. Oh, God. So we walked into mayhem. And that's how I first met those guys. Wow. And some fun tales over the years with them and, and some of the others too. But it's just good to know that, you know, you were there and got to witness it. You know, you were, you got your uniform dirty. You got a little on you, you know, and you woke up in the morning and said, what the fuck happened last night a few times? And that includes seeing Nirvana at Dobbs. And I saw Nirvana open up for Dinosaur Jr. right as they were blowing up. They did that <laughs> tour for Dinosaur Jr. Green Mind, I think, was the album. The Wagon was the song that was getting played. Nirvana opened up for them, and it was crazy. I remember going to a garage in the meatpacking district in New York and seeing Soundgarden perform Bad Motor Finger right before it came out. It was like a big New York presser, right? And what an incredible night seeing them and hanging out with them and getting the raised eyebrow and the head nodding to the left from Thale. You meet him in the back alley, and you're in the back alley and just enjoying a little Mother Nature's finest, and everybody's feeling good. A couple of guys, I think Ben was out there with us. Then, next thing you know, they're inside and they're on stage playing that whole album. It's still one of my favorites that came from that whole thing. Oh, yeah, and, Bad Mother Finger, for sure. I'm, I'm looking at the gold on the wall right here. And when I see it, it reminds me of a time when there was a whole lot of shit going on, Marcus. That's oh, yeah. all I'm going to say. There was a whole lot of shit going on. There was a whole lot and, of good stuff going on back then. Yeah, good trouble. It's great that you mentioned Bad Mother Finger. They actually were playing Outshine Live. They debuted that song live on October 20th of 1990 before they recorded. And Chris Cornell said that he was blown away by the reaction the crowd gave him for that song, having never played it before. Before, and they were like, we knew that this song was going to be a hit. It was a tribute to Andrew Wood looking down on him from above. Yeah. <sighs> Great moments. I'll tell you, you want, you want to hear a good story about from those days? Yeah. It's involving Soundgarden. All right. So the show is at the Trocadero, and uh, the headliner is Voivod. Oh. I think I've got that right. They were getting their big push from MCA. Second on the bill was Soundgarden on Louder Than Love. Oh. Opening was this band called Faith No More who had just signed to a major label and were issuing Epic. Oh, wow. So, so that was so right at the early Patton days. Yes, it was. Oh, my God. I love Michael Patton. So Faith No More comes out, and they do their set. And they're great. Everybody's enjoying it. And a lot of the songs uh, from that record we were playing on the Rocker Show. Soundgarden comes out, and they start playing, and they're doing hands all over. And while they're playing it, 
Jim Martin and Mike Patton come out with the deli tray supply of mustard and mayonnaise and containers and begin, while he's singing that, begin slathering with their hands mustard and mayonnaise all over Chris's arms and torso and legs. So he's standing there wearing the long shorts and, and no you know, shirt. the Doc Martens, no shirt. He's covered in mayonnaise <laughs> and mustard. And everyone is losing it. He's laughing. They're laughing, all right? Then Patton runs off, and he comes back with the rest of the deli tray and begins to pelt him with shredded lettuce so that it is all sticking to him. This is all while he's <laughs> And Martin takes pieces of cheese and bologna and starts flicking them at him, and they're sticking to the mayonnaise and the mustard That's all over amazing. his body. And this is all while they're playing live. And anyone who is there remembers that night. In fact, Chris asked about it one night a few years later, like, anybody remember the night we were at the truck and about a thousand people in the house hall were screaming out? And he goes, yeah, I remember that night too. Yeah, that was crazy, man. That was a great time at the truck in those days, always. And um, Faith No More Notorious Pranksters. Oh my God, yeah. And that night was no exception at all. They were singing the Nestle's Crunch song in the middle of their set, eating a Nestle's Crunch on stage. You know, just goofy shit. But they still are great. Still a great band, both of them. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the truck. Pearl Jam played there. I didn't get to see them at Dobbs before the record came out. And I saw them first time at the Trocadero, and it was the legendary night where Eddie almost climbed all the way up into the lighting parapet at the top. You know, it was just nutty stuff. I don't know. Something about, maybe it's the way the bars scene was situated for bands to come through but all those bands all got acclimated to Philadelphia really quickly I think a lot like Philadelphia was a home away from home to almost all of them pretty quickly and for the ones who are still with us and still going strong here in 2020 and beyond it's still that way for them certainly for Pearl Jam right true Pearl Jam definitely they have a very big love relationship with the city of Philadelphia Chris Cornell had a great relationship with Philadelphia until his passing as well the guys from Soundgarden seem to love it Jerry Cantrell likes it out here yeah. when he plays out here. Dave Grohl loves Philadelphia as well. And I know he's and I know he's DC, but with his Nirvana days, he remembers coming yeah. to Philadelphia and with the foos, he's gotten a lot of love. I look at where we're at. What are they saying? The only things that can be certain of are death and taxes. Well, when it comes to the Seattle scene this far down the line, it's been more death than taxes uh, that have killed what the scene became. Looking at today and tomorrow, we have mm-hmm. Pearl Jam. They're still uh, putting out music, some really good stuff lately and performing whenever the hell that begins again mm-hmm. and they're being sensible about it after a long break we got to be really grateful that we have William Duval, a gift to all the music of Alice in Chains including the stuff that they've created new stuff with him and I hear mm-hmm. Jerry's working on a new record and most of the rest of the bands though have faded changed as something else or sadly passed away in a mm-hmm. lot of cases and some of them are just holding regular jobs doing you know yeah. teaching or I know a few that are doing some social work If you look at any scene at the end of it or towards the end of it, if there is such a thing, because there's always phases within a, say, like an L.A. or New York that always has an elongated music scene that's always going on. There's always phases and changes and things come and go. And there's always that story of, you know, people going back to work and living a regular life. What happens? That's true. That's part of rock and roll, too, kids. Yes, it is. Are we ready to do our five favorite bands from Seattle? I think we could do this pretty quickly, don't you? I think we can. All right. My number five is one of the bands that we talked about that helped to set the metal trend out of Seattle. Became friends after the Rocker Show started in the late 80s and through the 90s. Almost actually worked with this band due to the, the connection I made with Jeff and his wife, Susan. 
talking about Queensryche, my number five band out of Seattle. Your number five? My number five, a band that we briefly mentioned, one that I love. They were a band that was very instrumental during some of my darkest years. They had a slower, sludgier, heavier, metalier sound than the big four. And I'm talking about Ben McMillan, Tom Niemeyer's band, Grunt Truck. Like I said earlier, Slow Scorch Above Me, Crazy Love, all such important songs to me. They're just one of those bands that I just really fell in love with the first couple of times I heard them. They hit me hard. When we had the Rocker Show, we played them every record that came out that we had while we were doing the show. They just a band that immediately connected mm-hmm. with what we were doing. So, Ophelia, what's your number four? My number four is a band we did not mention, but part of the punk scene. They moved from Ohio and ended up in Seattle. They didn't want to go to L.A. None of them in the band felt that L.A. was the place for them. And I'm talking about Mia Zapata and her band, The Gits. Love that band. Very punk. Very much a lot of attitude. She was a really good songwriter. And if you listen to songs like Another Shot of Whiskey, It All Dies Anyway, their cover of Sam Cooke's uh, A Change Is Gonna Come. All very, very good songs. And she was straight up and honest. She was brutally murdered. Joan Jett, Eddie Vedder were instrumental in keeping her investigation alive with fundraisers and donating money. And so were so many others in the Seattle scene. And then 10 years later, DNA testing actually solved the murder and they caught the guy and put him in jail. Gets, I think, are a beautiful band. Bobo, another great song from them. Who is your number four, Ray? Well, you might think they're going to be higher, but they're my number four, Nirvana. And I think that if we have Kurt for another three, four, five records, that maybe they're my number one. But they're my number four, Nirvana. And that leads to my number three, which is Alice in Chains. And they just have been so prodigious. So many great albums. So much great music on every album. So many different flavors and sonic adventures to have with Alice in Chains. My number three. What's your number three? My number three is exactly the same as yours, Alice in Chains. Facelift, I think, is an absolutely brilliant album. It's so dark, it's so heavy, but there's an aesthetic beauty to it that it pulls you in and it doesn't let you go. I love the way they followed it with the Sap EP and then they went into uh, Dirt and then Jar of Flies and then Three-Legged Dog and, of course, that beautiful Unplugged record. Just really an incredible discography. And then they took the few years off and I think William Duvall has done a great job holding down the uh, vocal parts that were lanes and really keeping the band moving because they still sound great live. What's your number two? Is a band we've actually spoken a lot about and probably one of the most influential in the Seattle scene. Started out as a trio and put together a lot of albums. Sadly, Chris Cornell is no longer with us. Soundgarden is my number two. They are amazing. I remember in Denver. I agree. That's why they're my number two. 
That's hilarious. I bet and our three funny. two ones are the same, dude. Well, the thing is, we didn't because we we're doing this on the fly. We didn't consult with Vegas. So, what do you see? What that is, right? Let's see. That's, that's my number two is Soundgarden uh, for all the reasons you just cited and everything I've just said and more. And number one, and here's what gives them the edge: it's not just Pearl Jam; it's Mother Love Bone yeah. as well. And that's my number one Pearl Jam: Mother Love Bone. Uh, my number one is Mother Love Bone without the Pearl Jam. I love Pearl Jam, but not at the same level. I love Mother Love Bone. And so what's that? Two and a half? Two and a half. No, it's three, man. We got three right. Andy Wood really is a catalyst, but we mentioned other bands like You Men, Green River, Mud Honey, uh, Nirvana. Wait, Green River really laid a lot of sonic they really foundation. Did. The more I listened to them this week, yep. the more I realized how important yep. they were. Go listen to Green River on Spotify. Yep. It's going to try to direct you to all kinds of shit. Just find Green River. Don't put Green River band because then it takes you to some band that do your homework. Find find the title for the EP. Rehab uh, Doll. Is, rehab Doll. That's it. Rehab Doll. Put in Green River Rehab and Doll on Spotify and listen. Queen Bitch, Swallow My Pride is the song that you have to listen to first. And the reason is, <laughs> is that's later. the song that a lot of people I've heard in the music industry from out west where I started radio talk about that being the song that really made a little bit of noise for the ball to get rolling with the Seattle scene. <laughs> is another great one. Uh, Rehab Doll again. Anything from them on the uh, Green River side. The U-Men, they have a couple of great albums. You can just find them on Spotify. They have like 30 songs that you can listen to and you hear the Flipper, you hear the MC5, you hear the Gang of Four crunchy guitars, you hear the Stooges, you hear that punk sound from the 70s, you hear the Sonics as well. Very much a lot of the Sonics and some of the Seattle influences. So those are some of the other bands to check out. Mud Honey, we both mentioned and I think they're high on all both of our lists, but not quite top five. Are there a oh, love battery we didn't mention, and we have to mention them? We passed by it, but that's uh, because there's so much to, to talk about. There really is. Well, listen, it doesn't mean this is the only time we're going to be discussing what goes on and what has happened in Seattle. We'll be talking more about the bands and, and deeper into them individually, some of them, in pairings in some cases, because I think there's some neat stuff that we need to talk more about that isn't Pearl Jam or Alice in Chains or Soundgarden. I agree. First off, all credit to Clark Humphrey for writing the book Loser, which is a great scrapbook of the Seattle scene. If you're looking to get some reference points for what we're talking about, check it out. I know it's on all the places where you can buy books online. And thank you for tuning in once again to what is just a musical adventure for us. You can reach back to us and tell us uh, spots we missed, blind spots, incorrections. We're always into incorrections getting corrected. So feel free to email us at imbalancehistory at gmail.com. You can find us on social media, all the uh, 
usual suspects there, right, Mark? All the usual suspects. We're everywhere on social media. Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll will get you there. Our website, imbalancehistory.com. And again, we know that we've left out some bands and didn't mention some bands that should be recognized. So feel free to shoot us an email, imbalancehistory at gmail.com, and let us know who we missed because these are bands that we will definitely mention when we talk about the Seattle music. I'm thinking of one in right more now. details. Who, 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 who? My Sister's Machine. Oh, yeah. There's a second wave band out of Seattle that uh, we didn't get a chance to talk to. And Green Apple Quick Step. So, and Quinn uh, and Presidents of the United States. Whole different slice of life, but yes. So. See, there's always more to do, and we never have enough time. It just seems that we just get started, and before you know it, comes the time we have to say, get the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to do it. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And this is the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.